0: Welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris.
1: And I'm Ari Deckard.
0: And this is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all of his medical experiences related to <laughs> the disease. Last week we talked about probably your worst medical experience. Yeah. And the failure of your second transplant. And actually this week we're going to take maybe a little bit of a well-deserved break from that, but a little yeah. bit of An unplanned one, because instead of continuing the story chronologically, what we're going to do instead is talk about the Alport Syndrome Foundation family meeting in New Jersey that took place this weekend as we were recording. Um, Last week, as you were hearing this, we just got back, and we thought we'd like to talk about that instead, because it was kind of a big experience related to Ari's Alport Syndrome. Yeah. So, Ari, I think first, why don't you just tell people what this meeting was?
1: Okay, uh... The Alport Syndrome Foundation started doing these family meetings recently, within the last year or two. I've heard about them in emails. This was, I think, the third or maybe fourth one this year, and it was the one that was on the East Coast. People who were attending were people with Alport Syndrome and their family members, some of whom also have Alport Syndrome. And we went to kind of meet each other, share our stories, And uh, hear about the medicine and the science and a little bit of the history of our disease, some of the research that's being done to help prevent and treat the disease and its symptoms. And it was just sort of, you know, a family meeting for Alport syndrome people.
0: And this was a really amazing experience, really interesting for both of us, but I think for you especially. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the first episode of this podcast, I asked you, have you ever met anyone outside your family with this disease? And you said, nope. Yeah. And after this weekend, that is emphatically not true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's still a thing that I'm kind of adjusting to. I'm really used to being the only one Um, (laughs) because, you know, other than my mom and me, that's it. And we're very rare They repeated a statistic I heard many, many years ago, I think, that they estimate there's about, but probably no more than, 30,000 people in the United States with Alport syndrome. 30,000 is a big number, but it's a very, very small number spread out amongst the population of this large country, and so I've never met anyone, nor have I ever expected to meet anyone, Uh, When I was younger, I thought, well, I might meet somebody if I ever went to some kind of meeting where everybody showed up. And I thought, (laughs) but that would be ridiculous. Why would I do that? Who would set it up? Um, You know, things like that. And so, you know, I go to dialysis or when I went to dialysis, I would say Alport syndrome. And usually they would go, "Okay, but is that polycystic or the other kind? And I would say, no, it's it's special. And would, it's its own thing, right? And and the techs who had had the amount of training they had had would go like, "Well, there is no other kind. There's this and this." And I was like, "Well, okay, sure, but it doesn't matter for how you're going to do dialysis, but it's different." <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it was um, it was cool and it was strange. Uh, I ultimately I liked it. I I think also another aspect of it is like I'm used to being. Sort of the the sickest person I know <laughs> in a in a certain way, I mean, I know cancer survivors and stuff, and I generally would consider them to be sicker than me, but in general, you know anytime I'm talking to somebody and they're like, Oh man, you know I have this this issue or that issue, and you know it's a real issue, and i I completely sympathize and maybe it's something I've been through or not, but there's a part of me occasionally that gets a little competitive. Internally that says like, well, I mean, you know, I could start playing my misery cards <laughs> and I, you know, I, I don't want to. And I usually, I don't, cause that would be a crummy thing to do, but I'm used to kind of knowing that whatever you're going through, I either have gone through it or I've definitely dealt with something worse. And you know, that, that makes me compassionate and understanding. And often, um, like I said, I may literally have had that same thing, but, but you know, not often. And usually like the worst things <laughs> nobody has experienced. And so here I walked into a room and I saw, um, lots of other people wearing hearing aids, which is an unusual experience for me, even in an audiologist's office. When you're in a doctor's office, some people talk to each other, but I'm not. I'm a little bit shy, and now I have a phone that I play with, or I used to bring a book, and I just kind of did my thing and then went and had my meeting with my doctor. And here there were lots of people, people my age, people younger, a few people older, and lots of kids and teenagers wearing hearing aids. In some cases, they've got really cool colors now that <laughs> they didn't have when I was a kid. Uh, I don't know if I would have been into that, but uh, these kids were, and that was neat. I, I saw all of that, and then there's other people who have dialysis fistulas or decided to do peritoneal or are trying to make a decision for in the next year or two, I'm probably going to be on dialysis. What kind should I do? And, you know, that's never been a question that's come up for me uh, from somebody else. You know, all those kinds of things are really hypothetical. Um, You know, I know, or in the past, I knew that there were Other people with Alport syndrome, but I never met them and I never really expected to, not that I was avoiding them, but I never expected to meet them because you're not just going to bump into someone on the street and go, Hey, secret Alport handshake. And so it was really neat and it was kind of, I guess, I don't know. Touching is really the wrong way to say it, but I am not often a joiner of groups, um, even though like as a teacher I, I emphasize teamwork and cooperation so much. It's very important to me. And I I think it's something that I'm pretty good at, collaboration and teamwork and um being on board and working with other people and those those kinds of things. But there have been a few occasions in my life where I arrive somewhere, whether it's like a physical arrival or a more of a I don't know, <laughs> emotional or mental arrival, and I realize, oh This is my place. Uh, I have a version of that feeling almost any time I arrive at a rehearsal. Mm -hmm. These are my people. Because especially now as an older person, I'm not in college hanging out with the same music people all the time. And as an adult, you're doing other things. You know, Well, I had my job, and then I was talking to my spouse about this, and then I needed to catch up on bills. And then, well, I farted around on Facebook for an hour, and then, oh, now I have rehearsal. And now I'm with my music people. Um, I didn't say practice in there, but that's also in there too. And so, uh, yeah, every time I've arrived at rehearsal, it's like, oh, here I am with my music people. And I did not expect to have that kind of feeling in this room or rooms this weekend where I went, oh, I'm part of an us. I wasn't expecting to feel that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but I did. And I, I'm sort of throwing out ideas and feelings, I think, and I hope in an organized way. But there's this other aspect too, where I'm older now. <laughs> and when I've gotten emails about Alport Syndrome Foundation doing research, they're talking about things that largely don't apply to me anymore. They might have helped me when I was five or eight or 15, but Now that I've had several transplants and I've been on dialysis at different times and I've done all of those things, there really isn't a therapy that's Alport syndrome specific, certainly that I know of or that is in the works, that is going to, say, cure my Alport syndrome.
0: Right. A lot of the research is going toward how can we delay end-stage renal disease? How can we delay kidney failure? Exactly. And for you, that's all already happened. Yeah. You've had these transplants. Like, that's in the past.
1: Yeah, going back, you know, 20 or more years at this point, even if you cure my Alport syndrome, well, I I have a transplant that works. I already have working kidneys, but I have lots of the things I have are what are called comorbid with Alport syndrome and end-stage renal disease after so many years of all those things Most of the stuff I deal with now is because of that. The Alport syndrome itself just caused the kidneys to fail, and that happened decades ago. And so when I have read about, oh, we're doing this research for kids, I go, oh, good. Well done. So those hypothetical kids out there that have Alport syndrome, boy, I am really glad I would think to myself that they might not have that much Alport syndrome. Or that instead of having to have a kidney transplant when they're 19, it might be when they're 30. That's amazing. That shifts all kinds of things. That means going to college without having this stuff right in the middle of it. You know, that that means a lot of really, really good things.
0: Right. It means people in the future will have an easier time than you did.
1: Yeah. And I love that idea. But it's also hypothetical people. And it always has been. And at this meeting, those hypothetical people were there not all of them, but there were kids running around, like I said, with hearing aids. There were kids running around with uh, lowered renal function and other things that I have experienced. You know, sometimes just um, proteinuria, hematuria, protein or blood in the urine, which is harmless, but is a sign of later things to come. And some of them with, like I said, you know, I've already started down some of the the more difficult aspects of of Alport syndrome, and I was I, I, I was really moved um, because I thought, oh, okay, well that kid then needs it, and that kid needs it. Um,
0: they were on a separate program path than the adults as part of this meeting.
1: Yeah, yeah, which I thought was excellent, that because. We went into some really, really deep science a couple of times, uh, that was certainly hard for me to follow. And I think it was hard for some other people to follow. It was nice that they did it, but if I had been 15, it, it would have been boring. And so they took them and did a lot more activities about sort of knowing themselves and learning things. And it was really great, you know, as a, as both an Alport syndrome patient and as an educator, I thought way to go. <laughs> that was good. But like I said, like I saw those kids there and that made, something about, I don't know, Alport syndrome out in the world more real.
0: This kind of transitions into the next question I was going to ask you a bit, which is how it feels to arrive there. And you're kind of the older generation of Mm -hmm. Alport syndrome now that a lot of the people at this meeting were women with the disease. Yeah. And women who are mothers with their children who have the disease. Yes. Most of the men there were dads or husbands of Alport sufferers. Mm hmm. And so that you were one of probably the, of the men, certainly one of the oldest sufferers there. Yeah. So yeah. Talk a little more about that. What does that feel like to realize you're kind of part of that older (laughs) set?
1: It's kind of funny because I tell my students all the time, uh, and at least to me, it's sort of a joke. Like, well, listen, I'm really old. I don't get what you're talking about. (laughs) You know, to an 11 year old, a 39 year old is incredibly ancient, but even to a 15, 16 year old, sometimes a 39 year old is incredibly ancient and, uh, I'm very square and so that makes me seem older, but here I actually sort of was. And you know, there's, there's reasons for that. Alport syndrome tends to affect men worse than it affects women. So going into this meeting, I thought about it a little bit and I thought, you know, I probably will be one of the older patients there, possibly the oldest. And I think in my like male centric view, I was thinking, you know, definitely the oldest because I forgot that maybe women might have Alport syndrome and be there and have of course lived longer than me, which I'm embarrassed to admit, but is at least a little bit true. But the fact is that Alport syndrome, despite the fact it was basically discovered and identified in like the twenties, wasn't really a focus of any kind of real research for the most part till like the late seventies and into the eighties. And then of course, now there's more going on and I was born in the late seventies. So before that, before people could really know exactly what it was and maybe do something about it because transplant medicine and dialysis medicine also wasn't really good. It was in its infancy in a way for several decades during that time before I was born, uh, Alpert syndrome tended to kill patients before they reached adulthood or about their 30s or 40s. And so they would not be around now, especially, generally speaking, um, male patients. So I, I kind of knew all of that, and I thought, well, I'm likely to be one of the, the older people, but I was actually a little bit surprised that as far as I know, there were only three adult men who have Alport syndrome at the meeting. Um and I'm older than one and younger than the other. <laughs> so uh I, I don't I was gonna say that was neat. It's it's not neat, but it was a little bit expected, but then it was also a little eye opening for like my sort of theoretical calculations to be true. Like, oh yeah, really, there's just not not a lot of men my age with Alport syndrome made it this far and maybe, you know, there's other things about attendance and other things and, you know, it wasn't like we had some kind of international meeting and maybe the, the numbers would be different where if everybody was required to go or stand up and be <laughs> counted, but um, that was noticeable to me at least.
0: Yeah. And what was noticeable to me too, we talked about this a little bit, but a lot of the research that the foundation is funding for understandable reasons is to prevent the things that already happened to you in your life. A lot of Mm -hmm. the things that we already talked about in the podcast, kind of all this research is focused on episode two, you.
1: (laughs) A little bit, yeah.
0: But a lot of the people there are concerned about... I remember somebody saying, okay, but what if it happens? Mm -hmm. And it was unclear what it means, if it is renal failure, or if it is just the bad stuff. (laughs) Right. But a lot of people's concerns and fears and preparation... Is to go through what you've already been through.
1: Yeah. It, uh, th- that was an aspect where I felt like I'm really glad that I'm doing this. That, I mean, this is just a pure coincidence of timing. We decided to do this kind of for our own reasons and the timing just is what it was. But a few people we met have listened to this. So, hi. <laughs> hi, everybody. Uh, and they, at least some people said, oh, it was really interesting and it was helpful. And, that was really, really gratifying because that's the whole point. Cause you know, we're not trying to make money off of this. We're not gonna.
0: I've made negative dollars. From right. Doing we, this podcast.
1: <laughs> we are making, um, yeah, monopoly money on this. So, uh, that we had to put into ourselves. So I'm, I'm really glad that that is true, that it's, it's helpful. And you know, from talking to some people, they were like, Oh wow, that's intense. And I got, I was able to to answer questions for some people and give a little bit of advice about things. I never ever thought I would be able to give advice about not that like, like, gosh, I got all this advice to give, but I have all this knowledge and experience about this set of things that we talk about now every week that I just have, you know, and that's great, but it's mostly useful to me as a memory. And here it was actually useful to other people. At least I hope so. And that was, gratifying in a way. One of the the other men at the meeting said that he was the uh the walking worst case scenario and I kind of felt like, oh yeah, me too. <laughs> um you know, that a lot of things like the last episode that we did that have happened to me that I've experienced are unusual to say the least and really, really unlikely to happen they are like a worst case situation or maybe not worst case that's horrible but pretty bad case scenario I, I, I hope that like by hearing well it could be worse or this is a thing that could happen that other people can kind of get get an idea that they're probably not in for this they're probably in for a much easier version of this if just because the medicine is better and also maybe because you heard this and we're like okay hold on I recognize this from what Ari said let's make sure we ask this question
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that, too, talking to people who are concerned, you know, and asking questions, what's going to happen, what might happen, Right. and then thinking about the episode we recorded, (laughs) like the the thing that if people go to our feed for for the most recent episode is going to be, and thinking, you know, I want to tell people compassionate stories and hopeful stories, and Ari is okay, and Ari is okay, Mm -hmm. but I also know, like, oh, man, bad things happened to Ari, and, you know, bad things might be in store for some of these people. Mm-hmm. And they certainly are afraid of that. And yeah. that made the weekend really intense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it really, I was going to say constantly intense. And it, it's a thing where, like, I think part of the purpose of the meeting, and, I, you know, I can't speak for the organizers, but at least for me, part of the purpose of the meeting was to get for, more information for myself and, you know, learn some other people's stories and see what they're going through because I'm always happy to listen to what somebody else is going through. And also hopefully that people can listen to what I have dealt with and see, you know, we can do that. But also at the same time, there are a lot of people who are at the very beginning. You know, when we all kind of introduced ourselves, there were a lot of people who were saying my child was diagnosed six months, 18 months, two years ago. And I think, wow, Because I was diagnosed like 30 plus, 35 years ago. That's a long time. There's a really big space, a whole pretty much regular lifespan of stuff ahead of you. And the parents are understandably terrified. And the kids are scared too because sometimes they're getting good information from their doctors and sometimes they're getting incomplete information from their doctors and this is gonna sound terrible. <laughs> I was a little jealous sometimes,
0: be- yeah, me too,
1: um, because as scared as so many people were, and boy, boy, do I get why i can't I can't imagine I mean, I can imagine, but I think I'm terrible at it being a parent and getting this diagnosis that means. You know, you start hearing words like dialysis, and then you go, well, well, I don't even know what that is, and you Google it, and oh, my goodness, that's terrible, and like transplant. I mean, everybody's heard of a transplant. That sounds terrible, and the way the media portrays transplants, you know, it's not great, and maybe there's other stuff, and it's expensive, and oh, by the way, hearing aids, you know, hearing aids, those are expensive, and they like maybe mark your child as different, and they might interfere with your child's education. Like, there's so many things that are so terrifying And all of those things are like basically in my past or part of my present, but have been for so long that I'm used to them. And still, and like I said, this is, this is terrible of me. A little bit of me was jealous and I was jealous because it's 2016 and the Alport Syndrome Foundation exists and it's becoming more robust every year. They have funding that they are raising and money that they are giving to organizations that are doing research, companies that are doing research to develop therapies that may delay onset of symptoms. And that's that in itself is amazing. And there's all kinds of things like that going on. You know, just transplant medicine is so much better now than it was when I had my first transplant. I know that personally from having had three over 20, well, over like 15 years. But The transplants that these kids may have in their future are going to be even better, even easier.
0: They might be 3D printed.
1: They might be 3D printed. They've been working on uh, so-called xenotransplantation where you basically raise a pig with your DNA and then that pig has your kidneys and other organs in it. You know, mad science stuff that's really cool and, you know, perhaps creepy but also cool and...
0: Yeah, ACE inhibitors, which are the new recommended treatment for mm-hmm. people diagnosed with Alports, that can delay the scarring of the kidneys and the failure of the kidneys for many years. Like people, you know, you lost your kidneys when you were nineteen, and this could delay it into the twenties or thirties, and that's that's going to be the reality for these kids. That's not the future. That's what they already can give them.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: and yeah, I, I completely understand what you're feeling. Where it feels terrible because you feel so relieved and happy for these children and for their families. And also that bittersweet feeling like, oh, Ari missed that by 10 years. <laughs> you know, Ari's mother missed that by 10 years.
1: Well, probably more for both of us. But yeah, exactly. And the other component other than these sort of physical, real medical truths that exist is that as much frustration as I heard on both days of the conference – from a lot of people about the amount of information or the kind of information they were being given. Everybody in that room who had Alport syndrome, I'm pretty sure this is true, had been told you have Alport syndrome definitively and definitively in meaning that almost everyone had like a genetic blood test that had been done that says this is Alport syndrome. You have a mutation on this specific gene, which means you've got Alport syndrome and My parents didn't have that. And not just you have Alport syndrome, but that means this, 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 and this. And we know that there's multiple kinds, and you have this kind, and that means you can expect a course that looks something like this. By this time, usually people have this symptom or this effect and by this time, people usually have this kind of effect. And those are bad things, like that I'm saying, you know, hearing loss that may be progressive, may not. uh Failing kidneys that means dialysis or transplant, things like that. Those are very, very serious, but they know that they're coming, and they have a pretty solid timeline of when they can expect them to come. And... I did not have that.
0: Yeah, I mean, reading your parents' perspective or hearing from them, I've read some of the things they've written on this podcast. I was picturing, oh, man, what if they had been in a meeting like this? (laughs) What if they'd been able to talk to other parents? What if they'd had pediatric nephrologists able to tell them all this information? Right. You know, I think we've touched on it, but this this disease and your diagnosis really ripped your family up emotionally. This is a hard thing, and so much of that trauma— wasn't about just the health things that you were going through, but the uncertainty and the unexpectedness and Mm -hmm. being half in the dark or more the whole time.
1: (laughs) I would say closer to 80 or 90% in the dark, yeah. That all the time, especially as a kid, so, you know, episode two stuff like you were talking about, all those times that something was going on with me, we might have a doctor saying, oh, this can't possibly be his outport syndrome. And we might have another doctor say, well, it might be. And then we have a third doctor who is like, oh, probably, but nothing can be done about it. Or calling you a faker. Right. Or calling me a faker. And um, there, there's plenty of that going on. And that led to me questioning, well, am I really having this symptom? And thinking, no, but I totally am. And it led to my parents questioning me sometimes, not necessarily directly to me, but in their heads. Teachers kind of going, really, can't you just get it together? But you seem really sick, but just get it together. You know, you're a smart kid. And, you know, we couldn't tell them anything. It's like, like, like I said, for several years, my main symptom was very severe headaches. Well, that sounds like such a fake thing. Like headache, stomach ache are the kind of things that kids know. Well, you can't really test it. And maybe you do feel like you have a headache for those 10 minutes or those couple of hours when you don't like that class or whatever. And so all of those things could have mostly that uncertainty could have kind of gotten away if I could have said or my my parents really my parents could have gone to my teachers. I mean I could have too but they could have gone to my teachers, they could have gone to the school with a letter from my doctor or maybe not even a letter, just an actual diagnosis that said Ari has Alport syndrome. That means this, 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 and this. It's real. You can Google it. Google, of course, didn't exist then, but now they can do that. And that's not to say that there are plenty of problems and obstacles that they will encounter with individuals or organizations, because those are all out there. But sometimes having just an answer or a diagnosis really makes a difference.
0: And... One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was in these various meetings, they had an audiologist come in to talk to people about hearing loss and hearing AIDS. Yeah. They had a nutritionist come in to right. talk about kidney-healthy diets. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was expressed a lot in many of these Q&A sessions from parents was real frustration with schools. Yeah. People who have hearing-impaired children talking about the, the obstacles their kids are facing at school and not being able to get the school to give them the resources they need so that they can have assistive devices so their children can hear or mm-hmm. giving their children the appropriate accommodations or frustration about how public schools don't give kids enough time to eat lunch, which <laughs> interferes with the nutrition. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you as a person who has this chronic illness, as mm-hmm. a person with a disability who is also a public school teacher, Yeah. what is that like for you when you hear people expressing those frustrations.
1: Oh, man, it was so weird. (laughs) It was really weird. You know, there's sometimes a thing when you're a teacher and people don't know you're a teacher and they start going, oh, yeah, they just don't understand my kid at school. And they kind of complain. And if you're a parent and your kid's having a problem at school, it's kind of understandably the school's fault. You know, you're frustrated that your kid's not getting the help that you think that they need. Uh, I've been on, you know, many sides of that. I've been the student getting the help. I've been the student not getting the help. I've been the teacher trying to give the help, but it doesn't, it's not seen as the help that is needed. I've been the teacher who didn't realize that I needed to be giving this specific kind of help. Um, and I've been the teacher who, you know, went above and beyond and they didn't even know it and, you know, all kinds of things. And so, I heard those complaints and I was first I was listening as an Alport patient and going, oh yeah, that's not good. And then I was listening as an educator and going, oh yeah, that's not good. <laughs> uh, one of the things that came up in the nutrition session was a complaint about amount of time that kids get to eat and so they want to like hang out with their friends and also eat and the 20 minutes or something that they get is not enough time and i thought well at my school we have an entire 48 minute period for lunch but it's a high school and a middle school and so sometimes that happens but and i i, I kind of thought yeah that should be changed you know i've heard that that's a problem at some places and yeah you should fix that cuz kids need time to socialize and play and eat and not just be doing you know the work of education because sometimes play and socialization is the work of education and so, uh, you know, I don't know how to fix that. They were talking mostly about elementary and like middle school kids. But the thing that more intrigued me was a, an idea that came up in an audiology session that I attended or that we attended where a, a child was making the transition from elementary school to middle school or was coming, approaching that transition and They had used uh, an assistive listening device, not just a hearing aid, but like uh, what's called an FM device where the teacher essentially wears a microphone that then sends a signal directly to the child who needs to be able to hear. I have used things kind of like this way, way in the past. At the time, they were more trouble than they were worth for a lot of reasons,
0: But now they seem pretty cool.
1: Now they seem incredibly cool. But some of the same problems exist, where, like, the person wearing the microphone doesn't remember that they're wearing the microphone, and so they go off to do something else, and they leave it on. There was a time for me where we tried it when I was in marching band, because I was on the field with over a 100 other students, and they would use a megaphone, which kind of distorts the sound anyway— and I didn't hear some of the calls. And it's really important to know exactly what you need to do immediately in marching band. And, you know, the instructor's trying to tell us something and I had no idea. And so we had an FM system and that worked for about a week. And then he forgot he was wearing it and would stop doing what he was doing and go to work with the color guard while somebody else did something with us. And so I was trying to hear the directions for what I was supposed to be doing while in my ears also was this guy going, okay, ladies, so when we toss our rifles, we need to remember this, this, and this, and we need to do this. And our choreography is way off. And I was just really, really confused. and I couldn't hear anything. Uh, there was also a thing where these adults were like, I can't believe I have to wear this all the time. It's so annoying. And that's a, an ongoing issue with...
0: Your disease is so annoying for other people.
1: <laughs> yeah, th- I mean, that's a, a common problem when you have accommodations for disability is that in order to accommodate someone, you got to go a little bit out of your way. And uh, sometimes we forget that we're doing that as, as a help. It's a small thing that helps and has a big difference. So the concern here, though, <laughs> was that the classroom stuff was mostly working. There was a transition that was beginning to happen where they were moving into more and more collaborative learning as small groups kind of learning and uh, projects. And that was a problem because then the classroom as a whole was a noisy environment and the student or students had to hear just a few people in a larger noisy environment. And so if the teacher has a microphone that doesn't help the kid because the kid doesn't need to hear the teacher necessarily they need to hear the other three or four kids in their group over a noisy environment and hearing aids are pretty good but unless you have really really expensive ones they're still like I do they're still not awesome in a situation like that they try but we tend not to give kids super expensive hearing aids for a lot of pretty obvious reasons and so there was concern about that and then there was also this concern that socially some of these kids we're missing those social cues that start to become, I mean, vital as like proto-teenagers and then teenagers, sorry, tweens and teenagers. And, you know, when we just think about our own experience, I think we kind of forget how important that was in a certain way. And like as a educator working with kids that age, I forget as I watch them do it um, that this is a time when social development is probably often more important than some of the content we are teaching it's really really important to be able to hear the little whispered aside and to giggle at the right time and to know exactly what's going on always with your friends and you know maybe your enemies and whoever else is in that class that's basically your age because all of that social strata stuff is the most important thing it's it's important like developmentally but it's also important to the kid You know, it's really important emotionally that they know and that some of these kids were starting to feel left out and the parents were noticing that they were a little left out. And it wasn't because their friends wanted to leave them out. It was because sometimes it's a little bit more efficient. If you say, wait, sorry, what was that little aside? Well, it was a dumb little joke that was only important 45 seconds ago and I don't want to repeat it. And what I just said right now is not what the kid says. What the kid says, never mind. And so well, I just missed that and now I'm not cool. And maybe that becomes the big inside joke for the next six weeks and I didn't get it. And that's terrifying for a kid.
0: (laughs) Well, this sounds like a thing that you really connect with. Well,
1: yeah, I. it made me reevaluate a thing (laughs) about myself because I'm a pretty shy person in a lot of situations. I have grown less shy as I've gotten older, but especially as a a kid in school, including college, but as a kid in school, I was pretty shy. And related to that, I've always considered myself not a loner, but a person who needs his alone time and, you know, enjoys it. <laughs> uh, and it is also like capable of kind of just being on my own. And sometimes I say, well, I'm a pretty independent person and that's largely true. I'm not a person that I think you would describe as like fiercely independent. And that's why I also don't call myself a loner because I'm not like always seeking to be on my own, but I'm the kind of person who I have long felt often finds myself alone or with a very small group of close friends and is okay with that. And I am okay with that. Um I'm not super gregarious life of the party, social butterfly person. I, I never have been. And listening to these concerns from these parents, I started thinking, when did that start? You know, I was a very lively, active kid in my very early elementary years. Was I a gregarious social butterfly kid before I lost my hearing? I don't know. Like, I really don't know. I I remember doing some of those, like, things that like really independent kids do so maybe maybe i always have been that person but i started to wonder you know at least what effect did my hearing loss have on my social development you know i i think i'm decent in social situations there are times i feel awkward but i think there are times when almost everybody feels awkward and there are definitely times where my hearing has and still does Uh, interfere with my enjoyment or ability to participate in a social situation. There were a couple of times at the conference where I caught myself doing that thing where I missed the little funny thing that somebody said and everybody laughed. And so I put on my big warm grin because that's what you do when everybody's laughing. (laughs) And... You don't know why, and you hope it's not something you really disagree with. But so, yeah, you know, hearing loss is an isolating thing. And I had hearing loss when these kids did. And so it caused me to reevaluate some things about myself. And I I don't know if I've drawn any conclusions yet. I think that probably it helped me be (laughs) more on my own, perhaps than I would have liked. My hearing problem did. But now it's like, well, that was 30 years ago or more, and I I just can't even say. I don't know.
0: If I could read you something? Yeah. Oh, you who think or say that I am malevolent, stubborn, or misanthropic, how greatly do you wrong me. You do not know the secret cause which makes me seem that way to you. From childhood on, my heart and soul have been full of tender feeling of goodwill, and I was even inclined to accomplish great things. But think that for six years now I have been hopelessly afflicted, made worse by senseless physicians, from year to year deceived with hopes of improvement, finally compelled to face the prospect of a lasting malady whose cure will take years or perhaps be impossible. Though born with a fiery, active temperament, even susceptible to the diversions of society, I was soon compelled to isolate myself, to live life alone. If at times I tried to forget all this, oh, how harshly was I flung back by the doubly sad experience of my bad hearing. Yet it was impossible for me to say to people, speak louder, shout, for I am deaf. How could I possibly admit an infirmity in the one sense which ought to be more perfect in me than in others, a sense which I once possessed in the highest perfection, a perfection such as few in my profession enjoy or have ever enjoyed? I cannot do it. Therefore forgive me when you see me draw back, when I would have gladly mingled with you. My misfortune is doubly painful to me, because I am bound to be misunderstood, for there can be no relaxation with my fellow man, no refined conversation, no mutual exchange of ideas. I must live almost alone, like one who has been banished.
1: Ludwig van Beethoven, the Heiligenstadt Testament. Um, Yeah, I'm not saying it's unusual, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty known thing. Um, so that was a letter written by Ludwig van Beethoven to his two brothers while he was staying in Heiligenstadt, and it's called the Heiligenstadt Testament. And, um, (laughs) I think, I mean, you know this, that it's a, it's a letter that's important to me. He wrote it when he had been having ever more severe hearing loss and had been recommended or even prescribed by one of his doctors in Vienna that perhaps if he took in some good country air and maybe ate a little bit better, he could stop his progressive hearing loss or perhaps even reverse it. And uh, that's a story I've told to different kids, obviously as part of their music education, and especially little kids all kind of giggle when you say, well, you know, this doctor saw it if he took some long walks in the park every day for a few weeks and ate his vegetables, his hearing would come back and they go, Oh hee hee he, hee. But that's what they hoped. And I I've gotta say, if only it were so easy. If only <laughs> that would have been so great. It it highlights the fact that this is not a new idea or problem or anything. And it's it's the kind of thing where he's talking about sort of the stigma of sharing the fact that he has a hearing problem. And Beethoven eventually had to just be super open about it because otherwise he couldn't have continued his like life, his profession at all, because he needed to communicate. But we're kind of lucky in 2016, not only do we have hearing aids, which are way better than those crummy ear horns that he had that didn't really do much, but there's at least a little bit less of a stigma. (laughs) People kind of know that, oh, that's a... A disability, that's too bad. But it does, it does isolate us because we, we miss those little things and those little things are sometimes the most important funny bits. I, I remember so many times, I think I was watching, you know, in, in my teen years or my early twenties, I'd be watching a movie or TV show or something with friends or family and something would be going on. and Often I would have the captions on, but captions are better now than they were then. And so whatever the funny little aside was that somebody would make, I would miss it. And I would say, oh, what did, what did they just say? And my friend would be like, oh, so he would basically summarize the scene would say like, well, no, he's going to go to the house and talk to his girlfriend because they had a fight. And I'm like, I know that you don't even have to have the sound on to know that. (laughs) I mean, like, what was the little clever witticism he had that everybody just chuckled about because, and, you know, by that time, three minutes had passed and then we missed three minutes of the show or the, or whatever it was. And I think a lot of people don't realize how important those little tidbits are that that's sometimes that's the communication.
0: The stuff of life.
1: Yeah. I guess so. And so I really, really empathized and sympathized with, with these kids and with these parents noticing that their kids are having that issue and they're worried about them. And it's a thing that they can't solve.
0: Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about a bit to bring this back to people's frustration about schools and public education yeah. is that disability is all about being different in the world and needing accommodation. This is what you're talking about with your hearing loss, needing friends to fill you in, needing sure. people to take that little bit of extra effort. mm mm-hmm and that public schools are really commonplace because everybody is entitled to a free and appropriate public education. Yes. Everybody needs to go there, and it's that thing where sometimes they really want one size to fit all because that's the way you can serve everybody.
1: Yeah, it's way easier.
0: <laughs> but it doesn't, and, that, and disability is a place where you need that different size, you need that extra effort. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of the perfect site for all of these problems to come up, these tensions to exist.
1: Yeah, it really is. As teachers, we sometimes get really frustrated. Like, oh, I've got to have all this what's called differentiation. I've got to teach this lesson three different ways at the same time because this kid only learns visually and this kid only learns orally and this kid only learns this way. And also this kid has attention problems and this kid has this other thing. And You know, there's all these different things going on at the same time. And, you know, if they all just sat quietly and I told them the information and they wrote it down, wouldn't that be easier like we used to? And like, yeah, it would be easier for you. But we know more (laughs) about how people learn and we know more about what's going on with individual people that is not just how they learn sometimes, but a thing that they need or they can't learn.
0: Right. It's about your It's important your very right to exist socially in the world or to thrive in yeah. society.
1: Yeah, it's not, we don't think it's okay anymore to just say, well, off to the leper colony with you, basically, that everybody should, we want everybody to be part of society as much as possible. And it's a challenge. You know, it's a challenge that each person with a disability or some kind of difference has to take on for themselves, but it's also a challenge for, I would say, the rest of us to be open to at the very least and try to help with.
0: One of the big things that was discussed at this meeting in terms of the science, mm-hmm. and so I think it's a thing that you and I should discuss, even though it's not directly applicable to you, Okay, is the explanation about how this disease and the variation of this disease in women is one of the biggest challenges for doctors and researchers to explain to people. And I think that's really important, especially thinking about your mother's experience. Because your family was told, you have the disease, it's an x linked disease, and she is a carrier for the disease. And that you were told that for years and years, and then it turns out, oh, Martha also had end-stage renal failure. Martha also went on dialysis and had a transplant. She suffered from the disease. She wasn't just a carrier. Right. And there were doctors at this meeting saying... We should not be telling women that they are carriers. That's not true. They have they have a disease. Yeah. And the science is really, really interesting, and I'll attempt to summarize what we learned, but I hope you'll help me. Okay. Which is that because the gene for Alport's is on the X chromosome, this gene that doesn't know how to make collagen 4. Right. In men, you have one X chromosome. Mm-hmm. So you just have that wrong recipe making wrong membranes in your body. Yes. Women have two X chromosomes, and because they have two, they have two sets of instructions. And so in lots of traits, one thing will express itself versus the other. It's called X chromosome inactivation. Right. So kind of your, your body and your system can choose which genes they're taking orders from in each instance. Mm-hmm. And so women, instead of just having one recipe, they have a mosaic. Mm-hmm. And so it's very variable and very individual. The successful analogy that the physician was able to make when he was giving the presentation was about cats. Yes. And he was talking about how the gene for whether a cat is black or orange is on the X chromosome. Yeah. And so male cats, black or orange, fur, and it's
1: Mm -hmm. expressed on
0: their one X, which is why all calico cats are female. Right. Because they've got two Xs. And they're pulling instructions from both. And so you see these mixes of black and orange all over. Yeah. And that's essentially that mix becomes the collagen creation in a woman with Alport's body. Yeah. You get that calico kidney going <laughs> on.
1: <laughs> kind of.
0: And I just thought that was really interesting to share because we're talking about this disease. And again, mostly your story storing your perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really huge. And especially because, you know, women have been getting inaccurate information about this. Yeah. And he showed a slide that showed that the majority of women haven't gotten the recommended treatment for Alport syndrome. They haven't been given ACE inhibitors, that the need to educate both patients and doctors about this is huge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I will say just sort of from our family history or my family history that for years, once they had said Ari has Alport syndrome, then they also said, and that means he got it from his mother and she's a carrier. They told us all those standard things. And I don't want to give myself a massive amount of credit here like, oh, well, I knew they were wrong. But there was something that was always confusing about that to me, which was that my mother's mother died of kidney failure. And it seems pretty obvious if we have this hereditary nephritis that I've got that's X-linked, it would be an enormously weird coincidence that my maternal grandmother died of kidney failure that wasn't the same thing
0: right and dying of kidney failure would seem to be a bit more than being a carrier
1: <laughs> exactly and so it was we were saying oh well you know women are carriers men get it and i i said that many times in attempting to explain my minimal understanding of x-linked stuff for alport syndrome but in the back of my head there was that thing like wait okay but That part doesn't make sense. And of course it doesn't make sense because it's wrong. And um, then when I had my first transplant and they tested my mother and they said her creatinine is high, which, as I think I've mentioned, is an indicator of poor kidney function. Well, again, that can't be a coincidence. And there were a couple of other indicators. They did not yet have a genetic test. And they said, oh, Martha, you have Alport syndrome. And that was weird because, well, no, but women are just carriers, we were told. But then it made sense, and then it was like, well, what does that mean? And we were so focused as a family on Ari needs a transplant right now that I think the question of what does that mean for my mom in the future was sort of kicked down the road for a while. And the fact was because the accepted understanding at that time was that women were carriers, they didn't know what it meant. I mean, I think actually now I know that probably there were people who knew, but we didn't know them or know of them. And so they said, well, maybe way later in life, dialysis, probably not transplant. And it was much later. You know, it was about 15 years later or so with my Loose math that, that my, my mother's kidney function got bad enough that she needed um, dialysis and then a transplant. And it would have been nice to know. Um, but it's still, like you said, it's still unpredictable because there are many factors. Like she now wears a hearing aid and, you know, I wore hearing aids from the time I'm like eight or nine and she got a hearing aid in her fifties. You know, all of those things were delayed, but for some people, you know, I saw little girls in hearing aids and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have kidney failure right away, you know, because those are sort of independent possibly factors that may be inactivated or activated on their different exes. And so that's fascinating. And it's got to also make it, I think, a little bit more tense as a, as a woman or a girl with a diagnosis of Abort syndrome because there's not as straightforward a linear or known progression age-wise. So you can say, well, at this age, probably. Like you can do a little bit more accurately for male patients. And I was really glad that they had said, okay, hold on. We've been saying this wrong all these years. This is the right thing to say. And this is really important for everybody to know.
0: Is there anything else you want to talk about, about big major takeaways from this conference?
1: You know, I just, I'm still kind of processing the whole thing. I didn't expect it to be as emotional as it was for me. Yeah, me either. I'm glad it was, though. You know, there were a lot of tears, and I didn't have tears, but I tend to mostly just cry at commercials and not anything else. But it it was really good, and I think that, I hope that they have another one near us next year, because I think I would like to go again. And I think that, you know, they're starting up a peer mentorship program that I said I'd like to be part of. And there's several other things I would like to help out with. And I'm really glad to do that and to be connected with the, the foundation and with other patients that way. Uh, related to that, we sat at a table with some really cool people that I'm glad I got to meet. A, a very nice couple, um, Michelle and Marcelo and their, their two kids have Alport syndrome. And I'm still navigating that, and I I hope I was able to give some small advice. Uh, And then I also, we also sat at a table with uh, a man named Tom, who was one of the two other men at the meeting who has Alport syndrome, and he's the one who's older than me, which uh, really I was kind of surprised at. I think he said he was diagnosed in 77, which is the year I was born. He had his first transplant when he was, I think, 18 in 1984, so his course followed a similar one to mine up to that point. Like we had a transplant at about the same age that at least used to be said was the expected age you have kidney failure as an Alport patient, but his transplant has just worked ever since then.
0: Yeah, for 32 years.
1: 32 years. And that was amazing to me. Um, I was so happy for him. I was excited. It's the kind of thing that kind of, that gives you hope because it's also the kind of thing that doctors tell you. You know, when you're going to have a transplant and you, you always want to say like, well, is this going to be it? And they always have to say, well, we hope, but maybe not. And they say like, well, there's, here's a few outlier cases where, you know, the kidney has lasted like 30 years, but often it lasts, you know, about 16 years. And sometimes it doesn't last for very long. And they're trying to prepare you for everything, but also say like, Hey, but there could be good news. You could win the lottery. And, uh, he did. And. That was way more powerful and exciting than a doctor saying, you know, yeah, there was one guy sometime. And I think that sort of in a nutshell is the power and coolness of having these meetings and having gone. And I wasn't really expecting to encounter that. And there it was. And so um, that was great. <laughs> it was really exciting um, that he he uh, has that result and is doing great. So yeah, I, like I said, I, I, we sat with them. You know, we met a number of other very cool and interesting people. I learned that there is a band based in the UK whose drummer has Alport syndrome.
0: That's crazy to me that there's a yeah. Venn diagram with people who have this rare disease and percussionists, right. and that intersection contains you and at least one other person.
1: Yeah, yeah, not just not just other professional musicians or like just the the circle professional musicians musicians with non noise induced hearing loss is a really small <laughs> overlap you know I don't know if I've said that before here but lots of times people see me with hearing aids and go oh drummer hearing aids got it yep yep you bang too loud and no I didn't you know my hearing aids have always actually provided hearing protection for me <laughs> they have compression and in some cases you know limiters and stuff and that's not where that comes from but yeah, that's super weird. And so I'm looking to kind of listen to this band and hear their stuff. I've read some stuff about them. He seems like a really interesting guy. And uh one of the board members of the foundation actually got to interview him when they came to play Madison Square Garden, which means they're kind of a big deal. So I'm looking forward to watching that video when I have a chance and, and stuff. Uh i <laughs> I feel kind of weird because I'm usually not the kind of person who's like, ooh, a celebrity has the same thing as me, but a little bit like, oh, that was, that was kind of neat. You know, there's a, there's a percussionist who is deaf and and named Evelyn Glennie, who I have always admired and I've met her several times and she's great. But she also does not have noise induced hearing loss. Um, but yeah, it's a very small, weird little world. And, um, that was neat to discover, and I'm looking forward to, you know, kind of delving down and discovering that and um, kind of keeping up these connections that that we made this weekend.
0: And usually we'd go into listener mail here, and I know I skipped it last week, Yeah. but actually we're running a little bit long. I don't know what the final cut or edit of this episode will sure. be, but I think um, let's end it here because we've been talking about this meeting for quite a bit, a little more than I thought we would. Yeah. So I'll wrap up with my final question. Ari, how are you feeling this week?
1: Now, pretty good. You know, last week was the first week of school, and sort of as predicted, oh boy, here's a lot of germs and stuff that came my way. I was a little bit under the weather. Uh, I actually threw up one morning, and then I was fine. <laughs> but um, sometimes that, that is a thing that happens with me now, and it's, like, I'm okay, but that's that's not pleasant. But i gotten some really good sleep this weekend now, and um, I'm pretty good. And and part of that is just, like, the, the weekend was emotional in a lot of different ways, but in a certain way, I left kind of jazzed. And I didn't know how I was going to leave. Like, I, I could have left, like, boy, that was a lot of science, or, well, that wasn't for me, or just, well, that's a thing I did. And Instead, it was a little bit energizing. You know, they're doing this research and it's not directly for me, but they're doing research. That's cool. And here are these other people that are kind of like me and some of them are scared and some of them are past things and some of them are in the middle of things. But oh, there's other people like me. That's neat. And yes, I'm a little bit less unique in my own mind. I can handle that. You know, that's <laughs> it was, it was exciting. And so I'm feeling pretty positive and jazzed and um, related to that, I'm pretty excited about this school year, um, having met my kids and, and things to see where we're going to go. So on the whole, doing pretty good. Great. Yeah.
0: And next week, we'll sort of rejoin the story in progress. <laughs> yeah. After your second transplant failure and the move to Seattle. Right. So that story will pick up. But for now, if you have any questions, and I swear I will get back to answering them on the <laughs> podcast when we stop nattering on. Um, kidneycast at gmail.com please send them if you have questions You've already spent so much of the weekend answering questions for people and it would be great we're happy to do yeah, them like on the it. podcast and we're also on facebook facebook.com slash kidneycast and on twitter at kidneycast i live tweeted a lot of the panels and sessions during the weekend so yeah. if you want to Go back and get a little information about that. You can. And all of the KidneyCast episodes and show notes are available on my website, laramorris.com. L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S dot com. Thank you so much for talking to me, Ari. Absolutely. And thank you to all of you listening to the KidneyCast.
1: Here I am with my music peeps, who I probably would not actually say peeps
0: to. Can you please give me a take where you don't say peeps? (laughs)
1: Can I say homies?
0: No.